you guys want to make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 25 through 37. Contained in this is a very, maybe the most popular of Jesus' parables. And I think it's going to be encouraging and instructional for us today. If you wouldn't mind, please stand with me as we read God's word together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, he being Jesus, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Then who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thank you. You may be seated. The first thing I want to look at is this lawyer's question. It's a good question. How must I or how do I inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life is a phrase that is pretty familiar in the New Testament, something that we use a lot. And I would say, maybe exclusively, the way that we understand this term eternal life is something in the future, right? So life after death or after Christ comes back and sets all things new, after judgment, I want to say that while that is in view, that this passage in particular, but other passages that we'll look at as well, actually is more exhaustive than that. It is not simply just the future. It actually has the present in mind. And I think in the context of this passage, that's actually its focus. Okay, you do have, you do have the future, you do have life after death in mind, but I think the focus of this passage is actually more concerned with the here and now. Well, you may say, well, why eternal life? And I would retort back, I guess, if we were having an argument. <laughs> I would say, well, it doesn't make any sense to say eternal life because eternity is removed from time. So putting eternity in the future doesn't make a lot of sense either, right? But it's more helpful to look at the Greek. The Greek word for eternal here is ionios which actually can refer to and often does refer to quality, not time. 
So eternal life, in this sense, I think most likely means quality of life or an abundant life. We can look at the Gospel of John for more clarity with this, with this term, eternal life. Um, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Now, there's a future thing there, right? Will not be judged is crossed over to death to life. But notice the present tense of has. Has eternal life. It's a current Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus again, in chapter 17, verse 3, says, and this is eternal life. So Jesus is about to define what is eternal life. Is it, is it what happens after we die? Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So by definition, at least according to Jesus, which I think we should go with his definition, eternal life is defined as relationship with God. That's his definition. It is reconciliation. It's being reconciled to God. And this is not just, again, a future thing, but it's a right now thing. Eternal life is a present tense thing. So I think it would be helpful because I think we do have these preconceived notions of eternal life being almost exclusively a future thing, to maybe think of the lawyer's question in a slightly different way, maybe word it slightly differently. So I think we could word it as the lawyer asking, what must I do to experience God's kingdom right now? What must I do to be in relationship with God, to experience the abundant life, the life of a kingdom-lived life right now, in the present? Now, this is a great question. <laughs> it's a really good question. And um, it's important to remember some of Jesus' very early words. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, his first words, the first words recorded by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, is this, the time is fulfilled, meaning the time is now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So Jesus when he's starting his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled, the time is now, the kingdom of God is here, it is among you. It has come. It's not just a future thing. It's right now. And this is what I want us to focus on today. I want to focus on how the gospel brings eternal life now, how it brings God's kingdom now. I want us to try and broaden our perspective, perhaps, just a little bit, to not just looking at the future, but looking at the here and now, and what the gospel means for us, living in our time. After the lawyer asks this question, Jesus asks him another question. Jesus is really good about doing this. He asks questions of people, even after they ask him questions. And what he says is, what do you think? You're the lawyer. You're the expert in the law. You tell me. How do you interpret it? And the lawyer responds with the correct answer. To sum it up, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right? Remember, do this and you will live. Do this and you will experience the kingdom of God now. You will know what it is to live in a kingdom reality. But we see that the lawyer does not accept all that this commandment means. And we see this in verse 29 with a very revealing 
question that the lawyer asks back of Jesus, and that is, who's my neighbor? And the text actually says he was seeking to justify himself. So we get a good insight into what the lawyer really wants. I think what the lawyer was hoping to hear when he asked this question of Jesus is, you're Jewish brothers and sisters. Just by the fact that the lawyer is asking this question, just the fact that he's asking it, means that he's a little afraid that God's definition of neighbor is maybe broader than he wants. Right? I think just the fact that he asked the question, and who's my neighbor, we can gain insight into this lawyer's heart. That he wants a narrow definition of neighbor and not a broad definition of neighbor. Now, before we get into this great parable and unpack it a little bit, I want to talk about what love your neighbor as yourself means. It's a little hard to understand. Um, like, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Does that mean we should be loving ourselves in a certain way too? Does that mean that we should be arrogant or boastful? Last time I was actually speaking to you guys on a Sunday morning, it was about a year ago, and I preached over 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And one of the central points in there applies here. And that is, as Paul's defining love, one of the things he says is, love rejoices in the truth, and it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So we have to keep a biblical definition of love if we're going to talk about love, <laughs> loving your neighbor as yourself. I think it's helpful to think I do not think it's a coincidence that God put as yourself in here. This sort of love does not have anything to do with feelings. Okay? It has everything to do with taking care of yourself, taking care, doing the things for your own good, for your own well-being. So the best way to think of this is we do all things all the time that we don't want to do, but we do anyway because it's good for us right? Do not want to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to go to work sometimes. Maybe a lot of times. Maybe all the time. But you do it because it is beneficial to you, because it's what's best for you, okay? Sometimes we don't want to watch what we eat, and we don't want to exercise. But we do those anyway. Why? Because it's beneficial for us. That's the type of care this is talking about. The way that we care for ourselves is not always contingent on how we feel. In fact, we often do what's best for us despite how we feel, in direct opposition to what we want, because we know what's best for us. This is the type of love for your neighbor. It's the type of love that says, I have your best interests at heart. So I think it's helpful to understand loving your neighbor as yourself in a biblical context. The next thing I want to look at is this actual command of loving the Lord your God with all that you are and loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Um, we see some deep problems with this lawyer's understanding of these commands. He thinks that it's actually possible to love God and not be so loving to your neighbor. And the Bible says that's impossible. 
one of the things I want us to consider is how we, often as people, put things into categories that the Bible never intended to be in categories, never intended to be separate from each other, and certainly never intended to be in opposition to each other. It is so tempting to say, if I'm going to do one thing, I'm going to love God with all that I am. Like, if I have a choice, I don't know what scenario this would be, but if I, um, actually, I do know what scenario it would be. I'm about to talk about it in the parable. So just bear with me. But my point is that we can think that we're loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul and not love others. We can think it's actually possible to love God with everything that we are to the exclusion of other people. And the Bible says that's impossible. The other is true as well. We think that we can love, quote-unquote, people and not obey God's commands. Completely misunderstanding that the reason why God gives us commands in the first place is because he loves us, because it's what's best for us. So these two things, although they're separate ideas as far as one has to do with God, one has to do with people, were never intended to be thought of as mutually exclusive. Remember, God created us not only to be in relationship with him, but with each other too. And those of us who are more homebodies and have a hard time dealing with people, I think we like to gravitate towards the whole loving God, and we're like, okay, if we don't really engage with people. Not a possibility. It's like, well, Corey, how on earth do you know this? Well, let's look at the writings of Paul. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, listen very carefully what Paul says. This is a powerful verse. It says, for the whole law whole law, that means all of it, is fulfilled in one word. And what do you think he's going to say? He's going to say, what? Love God? He doesn't. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is this because Paul's like, this is more important than loving God? No, it's because Paul understands, he has a complete view of what this command means. He knows that when you are talking about loving your neighbor as yourself, you are also, by default, talking about God and your love for him. Because it's not possible to truly love people and not love God. Read, I encourage you to read uh, John's epistle, 1 John chapter 4. He says very explicitly, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, the truth is not in you. You're a liar because you can not love God whom you have not seen if you hate your brother who you have seen. That's a paraphrase. That's not exact, exactly the wording, but that's his point. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. He sums up the entirety of the law in loving your neighbor as yourself. Again, it's because Paul understands these two things are linked. Now, do we see this truth in the parable Jesus tells? And I think we do. We see it very clearly laid out. This was the example I was talking about. So remember, the lawyer asked this question, this last question he asked, and who is my neighbor? And I think very clearly what the lawyer wants to do is he wants to seek, he seeks to justify any hatred or animosity he has towards certain people. He wants Jesus to affirm his understanding of neighbor. Now, Jesus, in response, masterfully tells a parable that turns everything in Jewish culture on its head. And he does it, he does this by two main things. One, he makes the protagonist of this parable someone who the Jews hated. 
He makes the protagonist of this parable. He makes the good guy the enemy. It's important to understand just how much Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They really didn't get along. You know, some Jewish teachers taught that if a Jewish person came upon a Gentile woman in the throes of labor who was struggling, not to help her, because if that baby died, that's one less Gentile in the world. And then some even taught that Samaritans were worse than your run-of-the-mill Gentile. Deep hatred, a millennia of hatred between these two people groups. And Jesus used the, uses this person as the hero. To make it even worse, he has two bad guys. And the bad guys are supposed to be the cream of the crop, the ideal person in Jewish culture. The Levite and the priest. I don't want us to miss something that can be easily lost in this parable. And this has to go back. Jesus masterfully ties in the greatest commandment into the narrative of this parable. You realize that the good guys, those guys who were supposed to be the good guys, the priest and the Levite, they walk around him and they do not help him. Why? It's likely the reason why is because they did not want to become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. By touching this man, they would have been ceremonially unclean. You don't think that these priests and this, this priest and this Levi were thinking, I am loving God with all that I am. Look how religious I am. Look at how much I am devoted to keeping his commands. Easier than we might think to fall into that trap. In doing so, what this priest and Levite did was break the entire commandment, thinking that they've kept one part of it. We have to hold both in balance. You will never find that you are loving God to the exclusion of others. That will never be the case. If you ever find that you're doing it, if I ever find that I'm doing it, it is a guarantee that what we are doing is not following God. And remember the opposite's true. We cannot be concerned with people's feelings and how they um, affirming what they do and their comfort to the exclusion of following God's commands. Because not only are you not following God's commands, so you're not loving God with everything that you are, but you're also not really loving that person. You're not showing the love your neighbor as your self-care. It's interesting that one of the greatest unifying characteristics in all of human history is a common enemy. And this seems to be the type of love and unity that this lawyer wants affirmed by Jesus. I'll love my tribe, my tribal identity, but I want you to tell me it's okay to hate everybody else, to be at enmity with everybody else. You know, the last time I can really remember this nation being very unified was after September 11th. And what happened was that there was a huge national unity after we were attacked by terrorists. And this unity was basically unified because we had a common enemy. We were a common people, we were Americans, and we were attacked by terrorists. How long did that last? Not very long. Where are we now? That seems like, you mean we were once like not hating each other as much as we are now? We are so far from that. 
This parable says that that type of unity is blind and mistaken, and that real unity, the unity that makes someone hated, a Samaritan, love their absolute bitter enemy, a Jew, is the kingdom of God now at hand. That has real power. That brings real unity. How does this apply today? Well, I think the same way it applied in this parable. Eternal life now. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what really changes people. That's what really changes things. You know, the litmus test for unity is not that people get along in an abundance of agreement or commonality, but that people love each other when things are hard and there are differences. This type of deep unity is only possible when people are surrendered to Jesus, when people are following him as Lord. I want to I conclude with what I hope will be very encouraging. You know, the church, Christianity, has a record of bringing God's kingdom into the world. I actually have a very long record of it. 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, people who have been surrendered to Christ and following him have been bringing the kingdom of God at hand. They're bringing it now. I want to look at the world that Christianity was born into so you understand just how powerful the gospel is. The Bible tells us it's powerful. We even have narratives and acts that show us how powerful the gospel is. You know, Jesus came, he was born, grew from an infant to a child to an adolescent to an adult. And while he was here, he experiences he experienced all the frailties of what it is to be a human. And yet he lived perfectly. And if that wasn't enough, his life was devoted to service. He was a servant. He was wrongfully killed on a cross. Now, this was the message that his followers started to spread. And I want you to realize how scandalous and strange this message is to first century people. You see, the cross was the most humiliating way to die. It was so bad and painful and humiliating and degrading that a Roman citizen could not be killed in this way. What the cross said was that you are a slave and you are less than a human being. You don't deserve pity. You don't deserve even what some animals deserve. It said we are Rome, we are powerful, we wield the power, you are weak, and because of your weakness, you are less than human. Imagine the shock of the Roman world as Jesus' disciples, after Christ has risen from the dead, goes and spreads this message that, hey guys, the hero of the world, the savior of the world, is a guy who was a servant, which is also the lowest of the low, and he was crucified. You see, the Roman, the Roman hero was someone like Alexander the Great, the, Greek, the great Greek conqueror, or a conquering Caesar, someone who had power. And actually, if you look back at the writings, the people praised and lauded their conquest. This was the hero, someone who wielded their power. 
Christ is the opposite of that. Someone who has all power, but instead serves. Now, miracles of miracles happens. It gets really strange. What ends up happening is that this gospel message, this kingdom of God now sort of message that's being sent, where Jesus is at the center, where Jesus is the one to be worshipped, it actually spreads. And it keeps spreading. And something happens at this point in history that has never, ever happened in the history of the world. It starts taking Roman centurions and Jewish religious fanatics and Greek pagans obsessed with worshiping their sexual gods. And it brings them all together and they become a church. You see, the entire history of the world before this, you can sum up in this way. This is my tribe, that's your tribe, I hate you, you hate me. That's what it is. And the gospel, within the time frame, time frame of a few decades, undoes all of thousands of years of human inability to get together. And it does it in a few decades. That's amazing. That's the power of the kingdom of God at hand. But it doesn't stop there. Within a few decades after Christ's death, as this gospel is spreading, there's an insane emperor named Nero. And he blames the Christians for things that they did not do, and he persecutes them. And one of the most amazing and incredible things he does is that he takes Christians and he puts them on large posts and he sets them on fire as lamps for the streets. Now you would think this type of persecution would wipe out a movement, and in fact it doesn't. It continues to spread. And they're still spreading this strange to first century ears gospel that says that the person who can change you, the savior of the world, is this servant that was crucified. Fast forward a century and a half. Rome is hit with a plague that kills about 5,000 people a day by some estimates. The accounts of this are pretty horrific says that family members are shoving their family out the door who have been infected with the plague, and that the bodies are as sand under people's feet as people are rushing to get out of the city. Well, then there's these Christians, as they become to be known, these little Christs, these followers of Jesus, proclaiming this kingdom of God is at hand sort of thing, and they're rushing into the cities, and they are healing these plague victims to the expense of their own life. And people are saying, What is going on? What is this? This is so different. This is not the world as we know it. And they're right. It's not the world as we know it. It's the kingdom of God that they had no idea existed and that they had no idea what it was like. And these Christians are showing what it's like. So Christians are going in and helping and healing the empire in some of its greatest needs. And this is the empire that killed Jesus, that sent him to a cross, and has been killing them this whole time. Christians are also being rounded up and saying, you have to stop worshiping this Jesus. You have to worship Caesar. You have to worship our gods. If you just deny Jesus and worship our gods, we'll let you go. If you don't, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. These are the type of threats that Christianity is spreading through. Fast forward a few centuries And the gospel proves to be something too powerful to stop. And what you have is the establishment of hospitals and universities. For the first time, 
in human history, you have widespread ability for people to get medical care and to experience education. Let's fast forward to a time in our own nation's history when we're struggling with the values that are put forth and the institution of slavery. You see, the institution of slavery is the oldest institution in all of human history. But the gospel, the kingdom of God, has a history by this time of doing the impossible. And it says, you know, there was a Roman empire that told Jesus that he was less than human once. And they crucified him. You know what he showed us? You know what the kingdom of God tells us? is that that's not true of anybody. And just because of someone's skin color, that is no grounds for saying that this person is less than human. And so slowly and with lots of suffering and lots of pain and lots of struggle, slavery is abolished. This institution that has been part of every civilization in the history of the world, the kingdom of God says, this is not how it's supposed to be. And the kingdom of God at hand What it does is takes that away. Now, we still have our issues today. We still have many things that trouble us and plague us. But I hope you're encouraged by the fact that the gospel message, trusting Christ, turning from your sins, following him, has a history of changing the world as we know it and going against the impossible. I hope... That this encourages us when we're telling people of the gospel to include in it that God changes our hearts now. It's not just about being saved for the future. The kingdom of God is at hand now. And that same power that Jesus showed is still available to us now. If you're not following Christ, if you have not surrendered your life to him, please talk to me or talk to Danny. Find me. I want you to know that it is the most important thing that a person can do is to decide to follow Christ. And it is not just a future thing. It is a right now thing. He will change you now. He will make your enemies your friends. He will give you love that you, where there was once hatred. I know this is true because he did it with me. And he continues to do it with me. I think it's important that we're taking stock daily in our quiet times and when we're talking with others to ask ourselves the question, are we loving God with all that we are? And are we loving our neighbor as ourself? Are we experiencing the kingdom now? Are we inheriting eternal life even now? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.